Might have exaggerated a little okay. bit. Okay, we're alive. Tav, this is the last one in the alpha, alphabet. 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 Okay. So, it is cross sticks, which looks an awful lot like a cross to me. Mm -hmm. And it's a mark, a sign, a signal, a monument, and uh, the mark of revelation is the sign of the cross. There we go. So, may my cry come before you, O Lord, and let... Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. Mm -hmm. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing for your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. Mm. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Amen to that. Okay, let's see here. We've got uh, a couple prayer requests. I know we do. I got Mike. He, uh, the guy we talked about a week ago, he had a hiatal hernia, yeah. and he had to go back into the hospital with blood clots. Um, and so uh, I in his lungs I believe and uh, I haven't heard from him back today he was in the hospital that was this morning and so we'll pray that he's doing okay and then Lothar is back on cancer medicine and so he's very tired he's trying to stay awake in Bible class and stuff and he says it's just very difficult he's in Bible school right now so keep Lothar in prayer the medicine is just really negatively affecting him and then our friend Steve has uh, had a uh, tough time recovering from heart surgery and a minor uh, stroke and so he's got some uh, things that are bothering him with that and uh, so we want to keep our good friend Steve in prayer and then uh, let's see here we have Tom Alley is um, traveling we want to pray that he comes back safely he's the guy that runs the mission work on Saturday he's been doing it now almost almost 17 years so it's been uh, a long fun adventure for us. I started one year after he did, and it seems like it was yesterday, and yet we got people that were this big that are now in college. So uh, it's funny how time just marches on. All right, well, we'll pray, and then we'll read that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to just come into your presence and to read your word and to share in life with other people and to just revel in who you are and the goodness that you display in us. Lord, thank you for the uh, safety you've given Sarasota and the cleanup, which is still ongoing, but uh, things are getting done and uh, it's getting back to normal. And we lift up the people south of us as well who uh, are probably, some of them are never going to recover and some are uh, just leaving and finding a new place. Lead them to the right place where they can hear the good word of Jesus. And Lord, uh, we thank you for every blessing you've blessed us with. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you bless this class and help us to keep from error. Help us to keep from error. We pray this, that you'll be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, let's see here. Today is the, anybody, it's the 14th, 15th, night, 20th. 20th. Is that right? Yes, it is. <sighs> okay, so the 20th of October means, let me see. God used some surprising people to save John Wesley's life. Okay, in 1742 and 1743, John Wesley experienced great success preaching to the coal miners of Wednesbury, 
Darleston and Walsall, England. I hope I pronounce those right. From his two trips in the area, uh, the Methodist Society grew to nearly 400, and Wesley established good relations with the Anglicans as well. <clears throat> However, in early 1743, another itinerant Methodist preacher came through and thoroughly offended the Anglican vicar, turning his support for the growing Methodist work to opposition. The clergy of Wednesbury, Walsall, and Darleston joined forces to attempt to destroy the local Methodist society by spreading the rumor that cockfighting, bullbaiting, and prize fighting would cease if the Methodists were allowed to exist. I don't even understand what that means, but anyway, as a result, windows were broken in Methodist homes, shops were looted, and several Methodist leaders were beaten. When John Wesley returned to Wednesbury on October 20, 1743, he preached at noon without disturbance, but that afternoon a mob from Darleston accosted the five-foot-three Wesley and Methodist leaders with him, threatening their safety. Wesley was able to talk to the ringleaders of the mob privately and actually win them over so that they promised to defend him. One woman even told the crowd, this gentleman is an honest gentleman and we will spill our blood in his defense. Sounds like the uh, people over in Acts where Paul was uh, preaching and next thing you know, they're trying to you know, stone him. Mm -hmm. This gentleman is, oh, I read that. Then several hours later, the mob returned and forced Wesley and his Methodist supporters to go with them to the home of the Justice of the Peace in Walsall to bring charges against Wesley. However, by the time they got there, the Justice of the Peace was already in bed and the Darleston mob had turned friendly. They dispatched 50 of their number to the escort Wesley home and the rest turned back to return to Darleston. Wesley and his escorts had hardly gone 100 yards when they were met by a mob from Walsall. Wesley suddenly in the middle of two traditional rivals, his Darleston escorts and the mob from Walsall, the woman who had sworn to defend him charged the Walsall mob and knocked down several men. But she was soon overpowered and might have been killed if a champion prize fighter from Walsall, known as, known as Honest Munchen, had not come to her aid. The mob pulled Wesley and the Methodists down the street, the steep streets to Walsall. Once there, the crowd yelled threats. Wesley shouted, will you hear me? No, no, knock his brains out, kill him, the angry crowd shouted. Wesley responded, which of you have I wronged? Then he spoke of the love of God, and for a while they seemed to be listening. But about 15 minutes later, Wesley's voice gave out, and as his words faded away, the crowd led by honest munchen yelled out, bring him away, strip him. Wesley's voice miraculously returned, and he shouted, you needn't do that, I will give you my clothes. Then he began to pray aloud, oblivious to all but the Lord Jesus. His prayers were answered in a most unexpected way. Honest Munchen, the prize fighter, suddenly locked eyes with Wesley and stammered, Sir, I will spend my life for you. Follow me, and not one soul shall touch a hair of your head. Several others made their way to the front, and the same, they said the same, and then formed themselves into a human shield around Wesley and the Methodists. The crowd was stunned by their leader's about face and was momentarily quiet. <clears throat> but... As they approached a bridge over a small stream, the shouts resumed, throw him in, and a scuffle ensued. Honest Munchen broke the arm of one of the protesters and was able to muscle Wesley and his supporters through to safety. 
John Wesley left Wednesbury the next day, but the results of his work continued. Honest Munchen and the young man whose arm was broken both joined the Methodist Society, with Munchen serving as leader of the Wednesbury and Walsall Methodists until his death 46 years later. Well, that was a funny thing. All right, anyway. Have you ever experienced God's protection in a frightening situation? Wesley entrusted himself to God's care, and God sent a surprising protector, the prize fighter leading the mob. We don't always know how God will protect us, but we know he has given us immortality until the day he has appointed for us to die. I will be with you, and I will protect you wherever you go, Genesis 28:15. Okay, well, that was kind of an odd commentary, but oh well. Okay, um, we are in the book of Colossians. We're just getting right through it. Uh, thinking we may be able to finish the book today, but we'll see. <clears throat> Too many interruptions from the back row, and that may not happen. Let's see here. We're in Colossians 2.10. <clears throat> Let's start with uh, 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Mm -hmm. Ten, And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Okay. This one says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. <clears throat> all right. Got something down there, and it's just not going away. The word complete in Greek signifies being made full. And the word you is plural. He's speaking to all of the people there. And it's speaking to all who are in Christ. Obviously, it's including us because it's in the book of Colossians, which is included in the epistles of the New Testament. So, you, being made full. The order of the wording in Greek gives us the idea of what is being relayed. This is the order in the Greek. And you are in him made full. Thus, it is a combination of two statements. You are in him and you are filled full in him. It is a sentence which takes us back to the previous verse which said, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, that was uh, uh, the previous verse, wasn't it? Yes, previous verse. Okay, therefore the thought for us to see is that in him dwells all the fullness, and as you are in him, you are filled. Paul is showing them that our sufficiency is of Christ alone. There's no need for the things that he referred to in verse 8 concerning the philosophy which the Greeks taught and the traditions of man which the Jews taught. Don't need any of that nonsense. Rather, everything necessary for salvation and continued spiritual growth is found in Christ alone, who is, Paul says, the head of all principalities and power. Okay, I'll stop right there before we get into the meaning of the next words. Um, there are all kinds of commentaries out there on how to be a success in life. You can watch motivational speakers, you can watch, uh, you can read Jewish rabbis' commentaries, you can read uh, philosophers, you can read all kinds of stuff out there to find out the secret of life. You can go to the writings of Lao Tse, and you can go to the writings of Buddha, and you can go anywhere in the world to find out what people think is enlightenment or that they think is uh, going to be helpful for you as a human and to uh, find out that you're uh, either spiritually aware or you're just in a good spot. And none of that adds any value to the Christian walk. I'm not saying to not read those things and to understand what people are thinking. They're good ideas outside of Christianity. That is true. But none of it will add to the value of your walk in Christ. Everything that you need for a successful life 
in Christ. I'm not talking about a successful life in the world where you make money or where you uh, are happy all the time because the Bible does not tell you that you will be happy all the time. You want that, you can go to the church down the road. They preach that. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that you will be happy all the time. It does say that you can rejoice all the time. Rejoice always. Rejoicing is not the same as being happy. I guarantee you that when Paul sat in a dirty Roman prison, he was not a happy person. But he was filled with joy because he understood that Jesus Christ had taken care of everything that he needed for the long run for the eternal walk with him and that he had no needs outside of that as far as his life in Christ and his spiritual walk with Christ. So we need to make sure that our ideas are separate. When we think about happiness in this life or comfort, going back to the, uh, you had some uncomfortable times in your house when the power ran out in the local area because the lift station wasn't pumping and that means that all of the water can go nowhere. In fact, when you flush your toilet, it comes back up out of your toilet. He found out a way of getting around that, which uh, any other time would have been illegal and you wouldn't want to tell anybody you did that, but uh, during an emergency, it's running down the road anyway. But the same thing with us. We have, at our house, we had no water. And the reason why is because most people never lost water. Most people will never lose water because water is under a different system than the electricity. But when you live on a barrier island like we do, they don't want you on those barrier islands. They have what's called a mandatory evacuation order. You must leave. If you don't, then you are on your own is what that means. Okay, they're not there to help you if you're not smart enough to leave the island. Okay, so when we didn't leave the island because I wasn't smart enough, they have a way of getting you to leave the island. They turn off the water. There's no water going to the barrier islands when when a hurricane is coming. Now, they will not turn off the electricity. They threaten to do that every time, but they will not do that. Because if they do that, can anybody guess why they wouldn't do that? Well, not just life support system, because those people are supposed to be taken out in ambulances. It's because they become liable for all of the food that goes bad, because they have voluntarily turned off power to a system that is presently working. And so they don't want to do that. I mean, that's a lot of food. Every restaurant, every every uh, deli, every you know, just the deli alone probably threw away $3,000 worth of meat because they lost power. But that is an act of God when the power goes out because uh, a thing blows or whatever. But they can turn off your water. And so they do turn off your water. And I can tell you, it was very, very uncomfortable having to take a shower out of a five-gallon bucket and to, you know, uh, just have water just enough to make it through a few days. But we did it. It was fine. But you don't have air conditioning. You don't have any of those type of things. And so it's not happy. It's not comfortable. It's not what everybody thinks you're supposed to have when you're a Christian because they go to churches that tell them that God wants you to the best for you and he wants to prosper you and he wants to bless you. And well, those things may be true on a spiritual level, but they do not equate directly to a physical level. And Paul is probably the perfect testament to that. He suffered a lot more than he had filling and fullness. And I'm talking about in his physical life, okay? But in his spiritual life, he understood that we have everything we need for our walk in Christ. He understood that we have everything we need to get us to our eternal home and that we don't need to worry about those things. I don't know why anybody would be upset when they have that. We were talking about that at lunch today, Larry and I, is that Christ died for us. 
the God of the universe united with human flesh and he was willing to die for the sins that we have committed. Okay, if he's willing to do that, then what do we have to worry about? I, nothing is the answer. Yes, life can be uncomfortable. Yes, pain can be debilitating. I don't deny that and I will never deny that and I feel bad when people are suffering, okay? But that is life, okay? When we think of happiness and rejoicing, we should think about it being in Christ. And that is what God offers us. So, um, hang on a second here. We've got somebody coming in right now. Um, yes, can we help you? Can we help you? Is there anything we can do for you? Oh, I, I, I see, I, the sun was behind you and I couldn't see who it was. <laughs> somebody showing up late for class. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, don't worry, somebody else did too, but I was reading something and I couldn't stop at the time, so I didn't pick on that person. <clears throat> okay, so um, we'll go on with that. Rather, everything necessary for salvation and continued spiritual growth, that's what we're looking for, is found in Christ alone. Everything that I've been talking to you about for the past couple minutes is what that is referring to, okay? Who is, Paul's words, the head of all principality and power? This is a term that he uses also in Ephesians 1, verse 21. The words which are translated as principality and power give the idea of government and the authority committed to that government. Christ's position is above all such things. As there are both earthly and heavenly hierarchies, it signifies that he is the ultimate authority on earth and in heaven. He is God. Now, when I talk about on earth, we have chaos in the government right now. Obviously, we've got crazy, insane people running the government of the United States of America. We've got people that literally should be committed to insane asylums that are in key positions of our government. These, these are mentally defective people. Does that mean that the, what I just said is not true? No. It means that God is allowing the world to do what the world is going to do. They rejected him in the beginning, and by the 1656 year after creation, he had to destroy the entire world minus eight people. Okay, he allows men to conduct their affairs, but he also has a process that is going on within this stream of existence. And so it says in the book of Daniel, and there's no contradiction in this, that he sets up kings and he deposes kings. He is the one that has authority over all of these things. And if he sees that the plan that he is working on needs adjustment, he will set up a king. For his purposes and his purposes alone, he set up a really good president about four years ago, four and a half years ago, or five years ago now, okay? And he was in office to meet the goals of God, okay? He established a uh, embassy in Jerusalem. He established the Abraham Accords between the Arabs, and that all plays into Ezekiel 36 and through 38, okay? Those people will not be coming against Israel during the Gog Magog War because they have made an alliance with him. So God is in control of all things, even if he allows things to happen, which we don't like, like having the president and, well, the person in the seat of the president right now and the other people that are running this nation. We may not like that, but he has allowed that, okay? He will come into and interfere in the stream of human existence to meet his purposes. But he doesn't interfere with things in a way that will take away our right to destroy ourselves. 
okay? And so that is what is happening in the world. But he has made a covenant with Israel, for example. He will rescue them as a people. The Bible is written. We know what it says about the coming millennium. We know what it says about the tribulation period. How many Jews are going to live? How many are going to die? It's all written there in the Bible. He is ensuring that that is being set up according to his word. We can have confidence in that. There's no other book on the planet that gives predictive prophecy that actually comes about, okay? People write books of prophecy all the time. Nostradamus wrote books, and people have to go in there and they have to search and make stuff up to make it fit whatever's happening at the current time in human history. But it's not what Nostradamus was writing about, okay? We know this. We know that the Bible has been exacting in what it is prophesied about the coming of Christ, about the, uh, the uh, exile of Israel, the reestablishment of Israel, and all of these things, because God is God. But he is God. Because of this, it is contrary to what is proper to petition lesser beings, such as angels or popes, in order to seek God's grace and blessing. We are never to do that. We are never, ever, ever to pray to Mary. That is not found in Scripture. It is not authorized in Scripture. It is an affront to God, and it is blasphemous to the cross of Jesus Christ. We are never to pray to Mary. We are never to pray to a saint. We are never to pray to a pope to ask him anything that belongs to God alone. There is no such thing as the uh, pope being God's you know, representative on earth. That is not found in Scripture. Okay, when the Bible says that we're a kingdom of priests and all that kind of stuff, the priestly service that we possess, does anybody know what the priestly service of Christians is? It's explicitly stated by Paul. The sharing of the gospel. That is our priestly service. Okay, other than that, we don't, in, you know, we don't uh, have incense and waft it around people and do these intermediary things that have no purpose. The incense of the Old Testament served a purpose. It anticipated the coming of Christ. The ingredients of the incense, each one of them pointed to some mark of what Christ would do or who he is as a person, okay? That's why they had that. Now, I'm not telling you not to use incense. I love incense. It makes the house smell good. It covers up the, the bad smells that come in and out from, you know, whatever happens outside, and it's great. You know, some people put in those those things in the, they plug them in the wall. What do you call them? They, uh, I, I don't know. They, aromatic things. Several of them. Yeah, they're aromatic things. You plug them in, they air make wick. the air wick and stuff like that. <laughs> Same idea. You want your house to smell good, there are a million different ways to make your house smell good. I'm not opposed to any of that kind of stuff, but that is not there for prayer and petitioning of God, okay? We don't do that kind of stuff. Uh, angels, we don't pray to angels. It never authorizes that in the Bible, and if you do, the angel will tell you, worship God, okay? These are the things that we need to remember. Once again, because of this, it is contrary to what is proper to petition lesser beings such as angels or popes or Mary in order to seek God's grace and blessings. We go directly to the only mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. That is where we petition because that's what the Bible tells us to do. To do so, those other things, to do so, like praying to the Pope or Mary or whatever, would be to deprive Christ of his position within the Godhead. And it would thus diminish what it means for us to be in him. And also, it doesn't work because, you have to understand this, we've talked about this before, but God is God. He is outside of time. He is an infinite being. Everybody, I think, here knows that. God is infinite. We are finite. There is no way 
to bridge that gap. It is impossible because our sins have separated us from our God so that he will not hear you. Okay? Sin separates us from a relationship with God. It is impossible to bridge that gap. He's infinite. He cannot mingle with a fallen, finite being. Enter Jesus Christ, who is God and who is man. Because he's man and he has no sin, he can mediate between his human self and his divine self to pass that on to the Godhead. That's the only way that that can happen. If you think it through logically, there is no other way to have this relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. Hence, when we are in Acts chapter 10, and we've already typed the commentary, I've already published it, but it says that, let me read it to you so I don't read it wrong. This is what I'm trying to explain to you, and this uh, will uh, come out much better when I read you what this guy said. Uh, he is praying, Cornelius is praying, and it says here, and you can go back and read the commentary, I'm not gonna remember everything I said in there, but um, it says here, uh, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God, okay? So God understands that this person's heart is contrite. This person needs to be saved so that he can have a proper relationship with God, okay? So what does he do? Does he say God is very pleased with your prayers? He says, no, they have come up as a memorial, a remembrance before God. God still can't respond to him. And so what does this uh, messenger say? Your prayers and your arms have come up for a memorial before God. Here it is. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose, name, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. If you want to have this relationship that you have been working at your whole life, he will tell you what you must do. It's not going to come any other way. It's going to come either through the word of the apostles who were designated to transmit this word by God, or it's going to come by the word which those apostles have put into writing, which we now possess. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why God gave us apostles, is to get that word out to us until the time the Bible was written, so we now have the word of God. That was and Acts 10. What? That was Acts 10, just starting in uh, 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 verse 4 and down to verse 6, right there. Okay, and then at the very end of Acts 10, Peter goes down there, and starting in verse 34 through verse 43, Peter gives him the gospel. That's all he does. He's just speaking to him, and he's, he, he's only talking to him. He gives him the gospel. And verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. They believed, and the mediation was accepted. The Spirit came upon them. Why? Because Jesus Christ is now able to mediate for that person because he believed the word of Jesus Christ. Everybody see the logic there? There could be no mediation because he's a fallen, finite being. God is infinite. There could be no way for that to be restored except through belief in what God has done through Jesus, the God-man. The one who can have one hand on the infinite and one hand on the finite and bridge the gap that exists between God and man. Okay. Now, Job obviously was able to do that before the coming of Christ because he was anticipating the Messiah. He even says that in Job 19. He understood the promise that was given at the very beginning, and that memory of that promise remained 
all the way to the time of Job, and he was still anticipating God's promise. Okay, and that's why he's called in Job 1, 6, and in Job 2, 1, a son of God. The sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord. They are sons of God. They are still believing in God's promise all that time later. And so they are saved by the later work of Christ. Cornelius was saved, excuse me, Cornelius was saved by the previous work of Christ. Okay, how all that is reconciled by God, it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's through his work. Everybody that was saved before the coming of Christ was because they were anticipating the Messiah to come. If you didn't anticipate the Messiah, there's nothing to be saved from. You don't believe in what God's provision is. The message has been lost. And today there are people all over the world that have not heard the saving message of Jesus. And that's why we need to get that message out. God has promised a Messiah. He has sent the Messiah and his Messiah is Jesus. Let me tell you the good news. That's our job, okay? But without that knowledge, people aren't gonna get saved. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen any other way. They're not going to get a vision in the night or a dream and have somebody tell them, you need to go find somebody to tell you about Jesus. That does not happen. I'm sorry. If you believe that, that's fine. I do not. I believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's the only way. And we have a job to do as Christians. Okay? So, um, once again, that's fine if you believe that. If you believe differently, that is a-okay with me. I know lots of people that accept that People have visions and they're told to go find out about Jesus. I don't believe it. I've heard that story a million, million times. I had somebody tell me that at the projects last year. I don't believe it, okay? I've, I've heard it so many times and I have yet to see one single evidence of that. Somebody had to go tell those people about Jesus. And that would negate the whole purpose of sharing the gospel with people if God did that. It would just negate the purpose of it. So, whatever, believe that if you want, but I don't. I believe we have a responsibility, and if we don't execute our responsibility, then people aren't going to hear, and they're not going to be saved. Okay, so, um, uh, Albert Barnes notes four areas in particular in which this thought especially ap applies. Okay, and I'll read the last sentence again so you know what he's talking about. To do so would deprive Christ of his position within the Godhead, and it would diminish the what it means for us to be in Christ. Here's Albert Barnes' thoughts on this. One, in wisdom needed to guide us. Two, in atonement needed for sin. Three, in merit by which a sinner is justified. And four, in grace needed to sustain us. Now think about that. In wisdom needed to guide us. We can't know God's special revelation unless it is conveyed to us. It's not going to happen. In atonement needed for sin, we cannot be forgiven unless we accept the atonement which is explained to us. Christ died for our sins, okay? In merit by which a sinner is justified, that goes along with atonement. God covers our sins. Atonement means to cover. It covers over our sins, all right? And when that happens, God declares us just, okay? He is just. He is the justifier of us, but he declares us justified before himself because of what his son has done. We accepted the premise, we've received the payment, and we are now declared justified. And in grace needed to sustain us. That is what God gives us. We may fall away. We may forget that we were saved, 2 Peter 1, 9. We may, uh, you know, have uh, somebody tell us, oh, that's all a bunch of malarkey and talk us out of our faith. And that happens all the time in colleges. Kids that were saved go off to college and they walk away from the Lord because they're, listen, 
God did not forget his promise to that child. Okay? That person is going to suffer all the rest of their life because they have walked away from the Lord. But the Lord covenanted with them in Christ and he declared that person justified. So when they stand before him, they're going to get a whole lot of not rewards and they'll probably get a good chewing out for not having stuck it out. But that's what the world does to us. It robs us of our joy if we are not willing to pursue him. But he does give us grace to sustain us if we are willing to continue to pursue him. Anybody disagree with that? I know he gives me grace every single day and I need an extra heaping most days. Okay, that is God. That is what he has done for us. We derive these things from Christ Jesus, not from lesser sources. We are never to seek a lesser source in order to have a relationship with God or to improve our relationship with God. I'm sorry that doesn't work. You think about, uh, what's his name, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and all these Mormons and all these women, like they marry 10 or 12 or 20 women or whatever. They all think they're marrying into a source of God's divine favor. All they're doing is marrying a guy that's got a bunch of wives. That's all they're doing, okay? There's no source of divine favor coming through these Mormon leaders, okay? They did that with, uh, what was his name? David Koresh, all right? All these people in this cult, and he had authority to sleep with any of the people's wives that he wanted to because they were supposedly able to get divine wisdom and inspiration from him. That's just perverse. I'm sorry, that's all that is, okay? There's no happiness to be derived from that. Life application. There is no praying to angels, to Mary, to a pope, or to a saint authorized in scripture. It is not to be found and you will not find it. Okay? It is not there. There is no class of person who is initiated in spiritual matters that we need to seek in order to be saved or to continue to be saved. Now, there is a need for people to be sought out in order to be saved, but that's not speaking of him being the the means of salvation. It's maybe him being the means of telling the means of salvation. Everybody got the difference? Okay, because there's somebody at 7-Eleven that's never heard of Jesus, and he asked me, well, you know what? I hear you're a preacher. What do, you, uh, what do I need to do? I don't say, well, you need to believe in me. That's not what I, because I'm not the means of salvation. Where do I send him? I send him to the cross of Jesus, right? That is where we go. Okay, there's no tradition of man that can help us in our walk with or to God. So I'm sorry if you read the Bhagavad Gita or if you read the uh, you know the uh, writings of whatever Mormon, the Book of Mormon, or any of these religious texts. They're not going to help you one little bit. They're only going to misdirect you away from the truth. That's all they're going to do. Once again, I'm not telling you not to read those things because it's good to understand what people believe. If you understand what people believe, you can then empathize with them and you can explain why they are wrong, how that is illogical in relation to God, okay? There's nothing wrong with knowing what other people know. Just don't use it as your source of inspiration, okay? Sounds like the beginning of 1 Corinthians where the baptizing... I was baptized by... Oh, yeah, by, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, okay, these are all people that... These are just people. Right. That's right. I'm... Who, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Cephas? Okay? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. In Christ, we have the fullness of what we need in order to meet these and all other spiritual challenges and needs. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And then once again, as I say, every time I say that, or at least almost every time, is that you can't know Jesus 
unless you know the Bible. Okay? If you're going to church every week and you're listening to somebody tell you about Jesus, he may not be telling you properly. He may not be. Okay? I know that for a fact because I attended for three months the Jehovah's Witnesses years and years and years ago. And I can tell you that I went home and I read the Bible every single day. And at the end of the week, I had finished the Bible because I sat in my, my business and I was there about 10, 12 hours a day. And I would read the Bible all day long and I'd finish it in one week and then I'd start again. And after a couple months, I realized, and it, didn't, it wasn't that long, I'm already seeing cracks right from the beginning, but after listening and after being there just a few months, I realized that what they are saying does not match what this word says. It's not even close. And so I was able to leave there. You can't do that if you don't know what the word says. You're totally up to whatever somebody tells you in a church. He may be a great preacher, but real bad in this area of theology or that area of theology. And you have no reason to doubt him on this and to accept him on that. You have no baseline unless you read the Bible day in and day out. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, morning, evening, whenever. Read your Bible. Listen to your Bible. I was talking to Larry today at lunch, and he listens to the Bible as well when he's driving. You get a lot of Bible time in when you're driving. It's surprising how much Bible time you can get in. You, you don't realize how much you drive until you listen to the Bible. I can tell you that right now. Because when you're just listening to music, you're listening to three-minute little clips, right? You hear a song, and then the next song comes on, and it's great. I love, you know, listening to different music. But boy, when you start listening to the Bible, and all of a sudden you're in the book of Jeremiah, and you only started like two days ago. I mean, you're like, how did that happen? Listen to the Bible. Read the Bible. Okay. Joshua um, 1.8. The what? Joshua 1.8. Oh, yes, that's a great verse. I'm going to read it to you just because I don't want to misquote it, but Joshua 1, verse 8. And uh, do you know that we're in the book of Joshua right now? Some people out there might not know that. We're, we're going through Joshua. So if you want to uh, know what Joshua is talking about, you can do that. Joshua 1, verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. You can't do it unless you know it. Then you make your way prosperous. The what? Oh, keep going? Okay. For then you will, that is, it's still verse 8. You're right. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Absolutely. Good success. Can't do that unless you know the word. Not possible, folks. You might have good success in this life. Okay. I know lots and lots of people. This is Sarasota, right? There are a lot of millionaires here. I know lots of people that are very rich, and they have no success at all. In my opinion, they are without success because they are without Jesus. So we have some Catholic friends who went to church and some event at a Catholic church. They would not serve me ah, communion. Yeah. And uh, I read the, I think it's called the Eucharist. Eucharist. And, and if you really read it, it says you, if you have a bad thought in 48 hours, you can't. You know, uh, okay, what he just said is that he went to a Catholic church and he said that obviously he's not Catholic so they wouldn't serve him the Eucharist but then he was just reading the Eucharist while they were passing out their wafers and stuff and uh, he said that if you've had a bad thought in the last 48 hours you cannot partake of the Eucharist what if it's 48 and 5 minutes ago? I'm sorry you're out I don't know. You are out, buddy. It's kind of a technicality so there. Friends, they, didn't, they didn't appreciate that I, I... I took it to the priest, and he said he would serve me this not in front of everybody. Right. So they... So how do you bring up 
don't pray to Mary without, de- I mean, it's like, like, I don't, I'm kind of a bull in a child. Oh, I know. I don't do it gracefully, but. So we love Mary, but they, pray, I mean, they... That's right. Well, how, what he's right. asking, because they can't hear you, I need to repeat okay. this. Yeah, so what he's asking is, how do you tell them that, you know, praying to Mary is incorrect, right? Is yeah. that... Okay. Yeah. There is no communion with Catholicism on this. There's no way to tell them this because they already believe that the church has replaced the Bible, that the church has authority yeah. over the Bible. They are the arbiters of God's word. And they'll tell you that. They are the ones that decide the meaning of scripture. They are the arbiters what you should and shouldn't read. I hear this people that went to schools run by nuns all the time. Don't read those verses. Read this and this and this. So they are the ones that have control over it. And there is no way to talk to a Catholic and to say it is not in the Bible to not pray to Mary, that there's one mediator between God and man. They are the ones that have to come to that in their own mind. You can tell them, but there is no way you can argue it to them. In other words, either they're going to accept your premise or they're not. Okay. That's it, okay? Because that is what they are. It, it, it's just like being in any right. cult. So you were yeah, Catholic. I, you I know am, this. Yeah, I was raised Catholic. I have Catholic brothers that are still Catholic. And, and here's the deal. Here's I, I try not to say this isn't in the Bible. Right. Said, all I try and say to them is that that cross you look at every time you go to church, he died for your sins because right. he was God, and he was put in a grave. You all know this because look at the stations of the cross, and you know yep. that he came out, and you know that he was rise. Do you believe he did that for you? And most of them will say yes. Right. Okay. So Which why do you need all this other well, stuff? Okay, but okay, don't wrestle with them all that stuff. Yeah. Is that not the gospel? Right. It's just okay. You're going to be in a crummy church for the rest of your life. Absolutely. But you believe the simple gospel. The simple gospel. And it's like I'm sad that they're going to waste their life with all these. And they do it all the time. Let them do it. They do it all the time. I'm not going to change them. I'll never change them. No, I understand that. That's why I I say there's no arguing with them on that because they have already been indoctrinated. So they have to come to that in their own. What they need to do is they need to just contemplate the cross, what he just said. And eventually, some of them, like him, will say, "Yeah, I don't need this anymore. I don't need all this because Jesus has done it. But it's when you're in a cult, you're in a cult. When you believe you're right, nothing else matters. And so, but I can tell you what they said about the 48 hours. I would never, ever be allowed to take communion. Right. Ever, not once. I would never. Or would the priest be able to give it? No, right. absolutely. Right. I it, there is not a, a two-hour period in my life that I can remember where I haven't had a bad thought. And probably not a 10-minute period. I ever. I wouldn't, but the whole point of that is because of our corrupt nature, not away to get away from it, but because of it. What does it say? I'm glad you brought that up, and we'll bring it up right now because there are people that probably listen to these studies that do not listen to the communion that we do every week. So I'll very quickly read you the verses from 1 Corinthians 11. I hate to divert from this, but you brought it up, and I'd rather have people know this that don't know the purpose of communion. You could have Sergio come up here and do uh, yeah, it. Yeah, he could give communion right now. <laughs> Absolutely. It says here, now this is Paul citing Jesus, um, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
and then he's going to explain a few things here. I'm going to read them, and I'll talk about that. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's the purpose, is to proclaim the death of the Lord. Understanding he died for me, meaning I'm a sinner. Every time I take this, I'm acknowledging that because it hasn't gone away. I'm still a sinner. And then what does it say? Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So they stop right there. And they say, if you take this in an unworthy manner and you can't have any bad thoughts for 48 hours, as if God has got to watch out and he's looking, right? They skip the rest of what the purpose of this is. It says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, okay? In other words, if you come up here in a haughty manner and say, I deserve this, you're ignoring the very premise of the Lord's Supper, that Christ died for my sins, meaning I'm a sinner and I still need to be cleansed, okay? You're ignoring that. And therefore, you are unworthy because of that. But if you stop before you come up and you say, you know what? I have sinned. I just sinned during the sermon. I had a thought that I shouldn't have had. I am corrupt to my very being and thank God that Jesus died for my sins. I want to acknowledge his death as the payment for that and come rushing up here and take your communion. That is the purpose. Not one person on this planet is worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Not one. And we never will be. But by grace, we are saved and by grace we take the Lord's Supper, acknowledging that we don't deserve what we are taking. That's the purpose of it. Okay, people get it completely backwards because they've got all this religion stuffed into their head like that. And for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Okay. So Jim, when you when your non-Catholic friends go up, right? You, oh yeah, right. Yeah. But but you know what? Again, to my point, it's like they know the truth. You just have to have them acknowledge it and, and reason and, it and out just, and just like and, and just say do you believe he's your lord and savior yeah. they're not going to say no because they already know he is and it's like just like be saved but you know what someday it'll click that you don't you're you're, you're being buffaloed by a lot of stuff you're being taking your eye off the wall it's like telling people about tithing in a church they're being buffaloed you right. go to a baptist church and they tell you about tithing you're getting buffaloed but if you don't know this word you're not going to know that well, I think you really, you said a word a moment ago, I have a lot of Catholic friends and family, and you use the term indoctrination, yeah. and I think that is so accurate to it, Yeah. and you have to realize when, when you're talking to somebody about this, you're rocking their world, I mean, That's right. our faith is where we think we're going to spend eternity, That's right. we're taught and trained, and so when I feel like, and I'm trying to speak to my family, I just plead Holy Spirit, please give me the chance. Give me the word to speak please to them. The and word. keep it focused on Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep it super yeah. simple. What he has said, because they can't hear him back there, I need to repeat this, is that he, I mentioned indoctrination, and he said that is exactly what it is. They've been indoctrinated. Anytime you're indoctrinated into something, it's very hard to get out of yeah. it. It's very hard to get out of it. So what, um, Wait, there's a saying, I just remembered it right now. A, a guy told me in a Baptist church one time, I always remembered it, as one of his friends said, if you raise them to be a Catholic until they're three, they'll be a Catholic the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. 
they indoctrinate them very quickly that the church is the answer. The church is the answer. And so you've got all the Jesus in the church, but it's clouded over. It's Yeah, it's diluted, it's polluted, it's clouded over by all this other stuff. And you need to get to the core of the issue with people. Jesus. And you need to stay on that core issue. And like you said, it's not worth arguing over Mary. It's not worth, because they already believe that Mary is some type of a mediator. She's not. And so be very careful. Keep it on Jesus. And eventually, hopefully, because uh, believe it or not, I would say that 85% 85% of all the people that attend here and online were ex-Catholics. Oh, I would say probably 85% of them. church and just say, in the middle of the thing, anyone who was raised a Catholic raised their hands. Hands go up like easily crazy. one third. We'll because some in, people will Catholic get values. out of that. They'll understand that it's nonsense. But um, I, maybe I said this. I said it to somebody It may have been in the class. Sean Hannity grew up a Catholic. He was a Catholic his whole life, and he got so sick of it. All the hypocrisy, all the false teaching, all the Pope doing the stupid things he's doing. And he said, I just, I needed to get away. And he said, I went to some evangelical churches and he said, I had to not go anymore because all they do is beat tithing over people's head. He said, I just can't stand it. That's all I ever hear about every single week. Tithe, tithe, tithe. And I thought, you go from one ruined church to another ruined doctrine. Preaching tithing. I mean, that's the least important thing on the planet. And they're putting it as one of the most important parts of the entire service. Forget that. There should never be the word tithe mentioned in a church except to argue against it from Scripture. That's the only time that we should ever talk about tithing in a church. Another okay. Form Another form of indoctrination. Okay. Um, if you uh, somebody's listening right now and you've never heard that before, send me an email and I will send you the sermon on why tithing is not what you think it is, it's not even what is represented in your church, but secondly, it is not something that should ever be taught in a church because it's an Old Testament under the law of Moses precept. It's not taught anywhere else. Okay, so 211. Wow, we're gonna move on. Okay, in him you were also circumcised Ooh. in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision, circumcision done by Christ. Okay, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Rather close there. Okay, so 2.11, where am I? Okay, 2.11. Paul seems to suddenly, even abruptly, introduce circumcision. Sounds like it has nothing to do with what he's been talking about, but it has everything to do with it. However, one only need to go back to verse 8 to see what he's referring to. There he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Circumcision of the Gentiles which the church at Colossae was comprised of. It was mostly Gentiles. There may have been some Jews there, but it was mostly Gentiles, just like all of the letters of Paul, okay, would be a tradition of man. It was intended, it was intended not for the Gentiles, but for the people of Israel as a sign to them of their inclusion in that body. That is what circumcision was. Look at me. I'm circumcised, therefore I qualify for this people. Okay, and then they may go, well, you know, other groups of people are circumcised. When were you circumcised? On the eighth day, okay? Or I was circumcised by a 
rabbi in a synagogue in front of the whole congregation to prove that I was doing it in a Jewish manner. Okay, whatever. Okay, so that was their sign. They missed the fact that the sign only points to something else. Okay, and Paul is talking about that now in Colossians 2.11. It was not intended for the Gentiles, but for the people of Israel as a sign to them of their inclusion in that body. As circumcision was a picture which pointed to Christ, then it is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? To expect someone to fall back on a picture rather than the substance would make no sense at all. I, I'm talking about the same issue right now in the Acts Bible study. It's a little ahead of you. I typed it over the past couple days. But uh, maybe I posted it yesterday or maybe it's being posted tomorrow about the feasts of the Lord. Was that today? Not okay. today. It's no. coming then. Um, I, 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 I typed so many of them that I can't remember where I'm at because there's 11 days worth of you them. Had circumcision five, six times in that verse today. Just today, circumcision. Okay, so we're doing that, and I'm also going to mention the Feast of the Lord. And before I even go on with that thought, we're going to take you just a little further ahead in Colossians. We're in the right chapter, but I'm going to go just a couple of verses ahead. I'm going to take you to verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. What is he speaking about there? The dietary laws, Leviticus chapter 11, okay, and Deuteronomy mentions them again. Or in regard to a festival. What's a festival? The Feast of the Lord, Leviticus 23. Or a new moon or Sabbath. A new moon was a, a festival day of the Lord, came about month by month as recorded in the Old Testament. It's not really explained why, but it is in there. And then the Sabbath, Leviticus 23, verse 2, I think. It might be 3, but anyway, he speaks of the Sabbath. And that was something that they did every single week. It was a weekly feast of the Lord, okay? As I say in this commentary that's coming up, whenever it's coming up, they are not Jewish feasts. They are not feasts of Israel, okay? They are feasts of the Lord. Anytime you hear a commentary that speaks of the Jewish feasts or the feasts of Israel, don't listen. Don't read it. You are wasting your time because they have misdirected the meaning of those feasts to begin with. They are not, they have nothing, nothing to do with Israel or the Jews, except that they observe them every year as a anticipation of Christ. That's all that they have. They are about Jesus. So if you hear uh, a commentary on the Jewish feasts or on the feasts of Israel, don't bother. They've already started out wrong, okay? And everything that they say after that is going to be tainted. They are, which are a shadow. All of those things were Old Testament shadows. They are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Every single thing that is found in all of those things, circumcision, food and drink, feasts of the Lord, everything anticipated Jesus everything. And so if you are looking at doing those things in order to be, you know, spiritual or holy, all you're doing is you're robbing Jesus of the glory that he has done. Or you're living out something that you're supposed to be living in a spiritual way. You're living it out in a physical way. Because the feast, for example, of um, Pentecost goes into the Feast of Weeks, right? And the Feast of Weeks, there are three pilgrim feasts. Those pilgrim feasts are picturing our life in Christ, that's what they're picturing, okay? The Passover and unleavened bread. That's 1 Corinthians chapter, anybody? 5, 1 Corinthians 5. Let me read it to you. 
This all has to do with what we're talking about right now. I'm getting a little ahead, but it's okay because we're going to review it again very soon. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says this. He says, Christ, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's a feast of the Lord, the Passover. And then he says, therefore let us keep the feast. He's not speaking of the Passover. He's speaking of the feast that follows Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. Let us keep the feast not with old leaven. He's not speaking about the chametz, which is found in the bread, the, uh, the, the yeast. That's not what he's speaking about. He's speaking about uh, the leaven of, uh, uh, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying that that feast that the Jews observed, get rid of the yeast in your house for a week. That only anticipated you getting rid of sin in your life. You are living out the feast of weeks right now. That's what it is. It's our life in Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. Now we enter into our sinless state. We are sinless before God. And so we're supposed to live that out. Why are we sinless before God? I brought this up last week and at least every other week for the past five years. We are not being imputed sin. If we were being imputed sin, then we could not live out the Feast of Weeks, the, the Feast of Shavuot. We couldn't do it, but we are not being imputed sin. So before God, we are sinless, but we still sin, don't we? So we have to make our actions match how God sees us. That is what we are supposed to be doing. That is the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread that we are living in. Okay, I said weeks and unleavened bread. I got the two mixed up. Okay, the Feast of Weeks, first is unleavened bread. Feast of Weeks is where they take and they present two loaves of bread to God. Okay, there's only a couple of times in the Levitical sacrifices where leaven is actually presented to the Lord. But during that feast, they are to present two loaves of leavened bread before the Lord. Jew and Gentile, sin-filled, standing before the Lord, accepted by God. That is what that pictures. So these type of things need to be understood. The pilgrim feast picture our lives in Christ. Christ does the work. He is the Lord of the feast. And then we enter into Christ. Okay, so that's how that works. Um, we'll go back. Where was I? Um, Yes, beware lest anyone cheat you through phil Oh, that's, um, yes, I'm still reading that. Okay, beware lest anyone cheat you with philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, okay? And then I brought you the information from Colossians 2, 15, 16 and 17, which says that those are shadows, but the substance is Christ. Okay, circumcision of the Gentiles, which the church of Colossae was comprised of, would be a tradition of man. It was not intended for Gentiles, but for the people of Israel as a sign to them of their inclusion in the body. As circumcision was a picture which pointed to Christ, then it is fulfilled in Christ. That's where we left off. Okay, so here we go. To expect someone to fall back on a picture rather than the substance would make no sense. And yet, what do we have in churches all over the world? Hebrew roots churches. They fall back on the picture. Oh, we've got to observe tabernacles. And all the people in the church are told to build little tabernacles and go live in them. Why would you do that? That's picturing our life in Christ. We are dwelling with Christ. He is dwelling in us. Okay? That's what that's picturing. That is the pilgrim feast. Christ's life being worked out in us. Okay? So why would you do that? But that's what they're doing. They're falling back on a picture rather than the substance. And it makes no sense. Okay? 
as Paul continues in verse 10, and you are complete in him. That's what Paul says. You are complete in him. You as a believer are complete in Christ. So why would you worry about the dietary laws? Why would you say, don't eat pork? That was anticipating something in Christ. Are you in Christ or not? If you are, then why would you fall back on the shadow? That doesn't make any sense. There's nothing lacking which needs to be filled up in the physical body because Christ has filled it up already and we are in Christ. Everything we need to be complete is found in Jesus Christ. Rather, here's what he says. This is Paul's words. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This is referring to Christ. Those who have called on him received the true circumcision. That's why he included this here. He's going right back to the previous thought and he's explaining it to you. All right. Those who have called on Jesus received the true circumcision. I'll pull out some verses if I, I already did. Yes. Okay. I won't do it right now then. Um, the sign, the circumcision, the sign which shows that we are included in the body, which is his church. The words made without hands speak of a spiritual rather than a physical circumcision. Why would you go back and be circumcised? Somebody tells you, well, you're not circumcised. You know, you're supposed to be circumcised. And they do this all over the world. Hebrew Roots churches all over the world. I can't believe you've never been circumcised. You can't be saved. Go read the book of Galatians. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Don't go back to the shadow, go to the substance, okay? I'll read it again. The words made without hands speak of a spiritual rather than a physical circumcision. It is a term used several times in the New Testament to indicate something which is not of the material world. We can go to Mark 14, 58. I'll take you there. I don't remember what that is, but it's the word that is used there speaks of something that is not of the material world. Mark, uh, what did I say? 15 or 14, 58. So Mark 14, 50. I got to go one more page, folks. 1458. Oh yeah, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another temple without hands. Speaking of his body, he's not speaking of the temple at all. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5 1 is the next citation. So we'll go there. 2 Corinthians 5 1. Oh yeah, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, once again. And then we have Hebrews 9, 11. Take you there. It's good to go through these things. I had forgotten all of this. Okay, 9, 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. Here it is, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Okay, it's not a worldly thing, it's a spiritual thing. And then in uh, Corinthians 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. All of those references show us exactly what Paul is trying to tell us. Don't live by the shadow, live by the substance. Okay, so um, uh, as Paul says in Romans 2, verse 29, here's what I was going to read you. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not the letter. The letter means the law. The law of Moses, he calls it the letter. In that verse, not in the letter, yes, here it is, is speaking of the law of Moses, a law which is now obsolete in Christ. So why would you go back to it? 
In part or in whole, it makes no sense. And it's an offense to God. It's just like saying, pointing at the cross, like Jim was telling us, point at the cross and saying, well, that wasn't enough. I'm going to please God on my own. That's exactly what this is doing. By reintroducing the law, by going back to the shadows, by going back to these types and pictures, it's saying that Jesus, nice try, but I can do better. That's what that is doing. Okay, the circumcision made without hands points to our, Paul's words here, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. The word translated as putting off is found only here in the New Testament. It gives a sense of casting off a garment. It contains two prefixes, making it a strong expression for completely casting something away from oneself. You're not just putting off the body of the flesh, you're tossing it away. You are now living in Christ. You're no longer in the flesh, you are living in Christ. So act it. That's what they're asking us to do. And when you don't, guess who gets harmed? Not Jesus. You're the only one that's gonna suffer if you don't live the life that you're supposed to be living because God has already placed you in that category. You've been taken from the category of the flesh and you've been put in the category of in Christ, meaning in a spiritual realm. You're still in a physical body, so you might as well have the physical body match the position you've been put in. Paul speaks about that in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 as well. Let me see if I can find it very quickly. Ephesians 1. Yeah, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then he goes on and he talks about these things and the things that we should be doing because he has already saved us. He's put us in this position. And then in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, uh, where is it? Um, uh, heavenly places. I think I want that from Ephesians chapter 1 as well. He's given us the inheritance, chapter 1. And uh, he says that we have been placed, oh, here it is. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By Christ you have been saved, here it is, and raised us up together and made us sit in together in the heavenly places in Christ, in Christ Jesus, okay? So he's already positionally sat us there. Now what we need to do is act like we're actually sitting there. That's what God would ask us to do, is to have our physical lives match our spiritual position, okay? That doesn't always happen. If you don't read your Bible, you're living a life that is less than what Christ would want you to live because you can't do these things unless you know the word. It's not possible. So read your Bible, understand what God wants for you, and then do it so that your life matches the position that he has graciously granted you. That's the idea there. So I'll read that again. The word translated as putting off is found only here in the New Testament. It gives the sense of casting off a garment, but it contains two prefixes, making it a strong expression for completely casting something away from oneself. It would be comparable to saying, I took it off, and I cast it away. The words of these sins are not found in some manuscripts, okay? I want to show you the difference between them. That they, they may belong there or they may have been added by some scribe to explain what the body of the flesh is speaking of. Either way, okay? I'm not going to argue it. I'm not one of these, this version only people. The words of these sins are understood even if they're not in there. Okay, so they're either original and God clarified it for us or they're not original and a scribe put them in there in some text just so that we understand, but it's already understandable. Either way, 
it is evident from the rest of Scripture that the flesh speaks of that which is morally carnal and earthly. When we speak of the flesh, we're speaking of living a morally carnal life, not that which is spiritual. It is the passions and the lusts of the earthly person which stand opposed to that which is spiritual and holy. God wants us to act holy. He wants us to be spiritual beings. He wants us to live our lives properly before him. Okay, and once again, I fail in that every 15 minutes. I can't think of a day where I've said, wow, I, I did a good job today, right? We're struggling in this life. You know, you stub your toe and you end up saying something you shouldn't say. All right, you get mad at your friend. You never talk to him again. Those kind of things happen. This is the world in which we live in, all right? But the ideal for us is to live the way the Bible would ask us to live. The ideal for us is to live in a holy manner and to thank God for every good thing he's given us and to live for him, to tell people about the goodness of God, to share the gospel. All of these things are what are ideal. When you fail, let it go. Get back on the horse and start riding again. Live for Jesus, okay? And when you come up to the Lord's Supper, acknowledge that you didn't measure up this past week, that you didn't measure up, but you understand that he's gracious enough to have sent Jesus. You are forgiven of your sins. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. Take it in a manner which exalts Jesus Christ, that thanks him for what he has done. Within Paul, 48 hours. Within, yeah, within 48 hours. <laughs> Not one minute over, buddy. I know that. Paul finishes the thought with, by the circumcision of Christ. The Greek reads, in the circumcision of Christ. It is a circumcision of the whole corrupt spiritual nature of man. Everything that's corrupt about us has been excised by Christ. Okay, we can still live that way, don't get me wrong. But the idea is that in God's eyes, just like we were talking about earlier with the atonement, when God sees Charlie Garrett, thank goodness for this, he sees the atonement of Christ. He sees the blood that was shed for this person who has accepted him. That is what God sees. When God sees Charlie Garrett, he does not see somebody that keeps screwing up every single day of his life. He sees somebody that has been justified because of the merits of his son. That's what he sees. And when he sees Charlie Garrett, he does not see somebody that is physically uncircumcised or circumcised. Doesn't matter. It's not your business, okay? But what he sees is somebody that is spiritually circumcised, that has been circumcised. All of the sin of Charlie Garrett has been excised by Christ. And I'm no longer being imputed sin. And therefore, I am saved forever, forever and ever and ever. Even if I fall back into the ways of the world, Thank God for Jesus Christ who overcomes my failings, okay? I'm not asking you to fall back because it's easy. I'm not asking you to do those things or saying it's okay. It is not. The Bible tells us it's not okay. But if it happens to you, God has already taken care of it. He has atoned you, he has justified you, and he has circumcised you. It is done, okay? But try living for Christ. Paul finished, I read that already. Um, it's a cut, cut away because of the work of Christ. This stands in contrast to the mere cutting of a portion of the physical body in the Jewish rite of circumcision. In our union with Christ, this circumcision occurs. He kept the whole law without erring under it. The work of his is imputed to us. And in that imputation, his righteousness, we are granted his righteousness. 
Therefore, our circumcision cuts away the law which stood opposed to us and which could only highlight our sin nature, not remove it. I'm listening right now to the book of John. And Jesus is excoriating the leaders of Israel right now in the book of John. He's excoriating them because they're relying on their own righteousness. And, you know, all the way through the Gospels, you're seeing this. You are like uh, whitewashed tombs. You know, you walk over these things, you're defiled, and you don't even realize. I'm, I'm you know, trying to give you sense, and I may be mis, mis, um, yeah, misquoting what he says, but all the way through there, he's excoriating these people because they're relying on themselves, their relationship with the law of Moses, and their own righteousness. When even in the law, it tells you that the man who does the things of the law will live, and they all know that they hadn't done the things of the law not for a single day of their life, none of them, okay? And he's just, he's taking them apart piece by piece. And you think of the irony, the irony of what happens in the giving of the gospel. Who is it that gets saved in Israel? It's the Jews who are just the plain people. Oh, those Galileans, well, they're all full of, you know, new wine and they're all drunk and everything. They're just Galileans, they're hicks. They come from the country and they're the ones that are saved. And then all of the people of Israel that are believing are just the regular people and the, the aristocracy and the, the scribes and the Pharisees are all, you know, just, they're ignoring him. They're, they're trying to hide the fact that he did what he did. There are some Levites that believe and some of, you know, the, but for the most part, it's just the normal people. And then what happens? The Samaritans, the Samaritans believe. Yep. And even before Jesus was crucified, I was listening to John 4, it was earlier in the day. John 4, what is it? The whole village of Sichar. Was it Sichar or whatever, where the, the lady is, the woman at the well, okay? The whole, the whole village believed. The people of Israel are completely disbelieving. They're, they're all over Jesus about him instead of what he is, the message he's conveying to them. The whole village believes. And then in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans are saved. They're given the Spirit. Okay, and then what happens? He goes and talks to a Gentile. The guy doesn't know anything. He's never been a part of Israel. He's a centurion working in, you know, Caesarea, and they believe and they get the Holy Spirit. They just believe. There was nothing they did. They never observed a day of the law of Moses. They had no righteousness of their own according to the law, zero. And Peter's speaking to him, and while he's still speaking, you know, in Acts chapter 11, how he words it, Here's what he says in Acts chapter 11. We heard Acts chapter 10, where they believed and they received the Spirit, but how does it word it in Acts chapter 11? Peter is being accused by the, um, when he goes back. And so he has to re-explain again in chapter 11, everything that happened. And how does he say it to him? It says here in verse three, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. They're all angry at him. What have you done? And Peter explains all the way down there. And he says, um, he gets down here, uh, the Spirit told me to go. He tells him about the vision. He tells him to go there, and he's speaking to them, and Peter uh, is explaining to them what happened, and here's what he says in verse 15, 11, 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. He hadn't even finished his thoughts. He got the gospel out. That's all he needed to get out. And so God said, that's enough, Peter. We don't need you anymore. And the Holy Spirit came on all of them that believed, the whole house, as I began to speak. 
They, he didn't say one thing about observing the law of Moses. He didn't say any of that. He's just talking about Jesus and how he did these things. And they believed while he was speaking and they were saved. And Jesus was there in front of Israel the entire time, showing them demonstrations of the miracles and the power that he possessed, and they couldn't get it. The, the more that we look to religion, like Roman Catholicism or Mormonism or any of these things that where people are looking at their religion instead of at Christ, the less chance we have of ever coming to Christ. That's all there is to it. We get so clouded with the things of this world and our own supposed righteousness that Christ just doesn't mean anything to us. Anyway, okay. Our circumcision cuts away the law which stood opposed to us and which could only highlight our sin nature. It could not remove it. In Christ, however, however, I'm going to tell you this about Sunday's sermon. I, you, you heard last week's sermon or you read it if you're Burke. And so you know that uh, some of the typology from uh, chapter 8, okay? But there is a point about the law that is being made in that chapter, chapter 8, okay? And I will give you a hint so that when you go home, you can read chapter 8 again and you may get it, okay? If you didn't get the typology so far in chapter 8, nobody is going to come to God apart from the law of Moses. They're just not going to come on their own earning of the law of Moses or their own merit under the law of Moses. They're going to come through Christ's perfection under the law of Moses. Nobody's coming to God apart from his attaining perfection under the law. He was already perfect, but he had to be perfect under the law. He was without sin, but he had to continue without sin until the end. And he did it. He prevailed over the law. And that's pictured in uh, Joshua chapter 8. Okay, We're not going to come to God except from the merits of Jesus Christ because he fulfilled the law. So when I say that you're not going to come apart from the law of Moses, not you're working out the law of Moses, his working law of Moses. I was talking to uh, Andre. Uh, he was here this past week, the guy from the Ukraine, he and his wife, and they were over there and we were talking. That guy gets grace. Wow, you want to know somebody that gets grace. Next time he's here, talk to him. He understands. He really gets the Bible. Okay, he's always in arguments with his family and friends because they're in these Ukrainian churches, which are like Catholic churches. They're very orthodox and they do a lot of stuff and they think that's what merits their God's favor. And uh, he, uh, we, we were talking about exactly that and uh, you know how we, every person, the people in China have never been given the law of Moses. But who is the judge of those people in China? Jesus. Christ. He's the judge of all people, the living and the dead, right? So, even though they've never been under the law of Moses, they have to achieve Christ's perfection in order to come to God, don't they? So everybody, even if you've never been under the law of Moses, you're still judged by the standard, which is Christ. And he made it through the law of Moses. He set the standard. So even though you're not under the law of Moses, you still have to meet its perfection. Everybody get the logic? Because Christ's perfection is what is demanded by God. So you can either come to Christ and he's going to say, come on in, or he's going to say, are you perfect? Did you meet the perfection that I made? No, I'm sorry, you can't come in. He's the path, he's the door, he is the way to God. So even though they haven't been under the law, they have to meet the perfection of the law, which is what Christ did, okay? Once again, they were never under law, we're not putting law on them, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they have to meet the standard of perfection. 
Not that they have to go through the law. They never will. It is Christ or it is nothing, in other words. Only Jesus. If you think it through, every single possible contingency that could be brought up in any theological matter is solved in Jesus Christ. Everything. God has left nothing undone to secure our salvation. Nothing. Okay. In Christ, it is removed, meaning the law. In verse 14, which is coming up, Colossians 2.14, Paul will say that the law is nailed to the cross, indicating that it died with him on the cross. Jesus Christ, nobody went up to Jesus' cross and took a law, a copy of the law, and nailed it to his cross. Okay? Paul is speaking in symbolism there. The law is nailed to the cross. What does that mean? Jesus embodies the law. He was nailed to the cross. That is what Paul is saying. And Jesus did what on the cross? Died. He died. If the law is nailed to the cross, Jesus, which that is what he's saying, it is Jesus. He is the embodiment of the law. If Jesus is on that cross and he died, that means that the law, the law is dead. That is what that means. I don't know how people can't get that. It's explicitly said three times in the book of Hebrews. It's implicitly said at least 5,827 times, but it's explicitly said three times. Okay, I might have gotten that number wrong, so don't quote me on that. But it, it is as clear as it can be. The law is done. Not me. I don't know. What is it? Oh, oh, okay. I, I thought it was coming from outside the building. It sounded like it was coming from Amber Alert. What is that? Somebody, a child? Everybody on a cell phone gets it. You can't stop it. Oh, that's okay. I don't mind. It's kidnapping. Okay, well, we'll pray for that child as soon as we're done here. Well, we're almost done anyway. Life application. Physical circumcision is not required for believers in Christ. Not required. In fact, Paul argues against it so strenuously that if you do it, he says you've fallen from grace. You're a debtor to the entire law. But you, you just said that, so the women have a, ch a chance. When it, when it was physical, it was men. Right. So it is spiritual. That's it's got to be spiritual. Absolutely. Right. It's just a picture of Christ. Right. Absolutely right. Because there's nothing about the woman in there. That's You're right. As that was the preeminent sign, the preeminent sign of inclusion into the corporate body of the people of Israel, then any lesser sign or mandate must necessarily be done away with as well. Done, 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 done. Don't let the Judaizers of the world fool you into believing that you must meet this demand of the law or that demand of the law. The law of Moses is finished and it is annulled. It also says it's obsolete. It's set aside. Why is this so hard to get through the minds of God's people? Why is it so hard? And as I said earlier, we were talking before the class about tithing, and tithing is an Old Testament precept. Now, I understand there are a lot of very good preachers in this world that preach tithing. There's lots of them. They just don't make the proper connection that this is not a New Testament precept. Okay? I don't bear them any grudges, but I think that they need to be instructed that you are mishandling the Word of God. And I understand that most people never read the book of Deuteronomy. I said this in a, uh, uh, Maya had it in a Bible bite recently, then I forgot about that, but I was at uh, Temple Baptist Church down here years ago. That's where my children went to school was West Florida Christian School, and that's where Temple Baptist is. The preacher is also the uh, principal. Okay, so... Um, one of the uh, ministers there, great guy. He was a really nice guy. He
he was having the Bible class every Sunday that we went to. And one time he said, oh yeah, I read the, the Old Testament once. He was a minister for over 30 years and he read it once. I got to tell you, when I sat down and started reading the Bible, it was probably the eighth or 10th time before I realized what the Deuteronomy sermons were saying. I completely overlooked because there's so much information. And I'm reading, I'm saying, wait, how can that say that? And I start, I read it and I'm like, well, I understand. I understand that good people are in the pulpit that are preaching this. They just need to be educated that it is not proper. Okay, it's time to uh, leave. Linda always has a question. She's asked it three times today as we were reading your daily thing. Yes. How did they know that they were circumcised or not? What do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, it's like, well, he's circumcised. It's like, yeah, well, Oh, they'd show them. They had no problem proving that. All right. They had no so, pro problem with that at all. So that, was, that was a necessary condition. If somebody claimed they were a Jew, they had to prove it. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not hard to do. You know, no. I mean, well, yeah, but yes, that, that's how they know. That's, yes. Um, okay, so uh, uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. What's that? Absolutely. He just said they do it today, too. They want to confirm this. Um, that was Jody. Uh, shame on them. They forgot to have Bible class today. What? No, they're packing. I, they're, they're, they're moving. So I completely, under, I, I would have been surprised if they did come. Right. But I'm still going to excoriate her just for fun. Okay, we got to go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have taken this burden away from us. Thank you that you have sent Jesus to die on the cross to take all of this stuff away from us and just give us grace. And Lord, how hard it is for the people of this world to just accept that. If we can get that one word right, then everything else will fall into its proper place. Grace, grace, God's grace. Thank you for his grace. Lord, there is a child right now that may have been abducted. And uh, we would pray that whoever that is and wherever it is that uh, you would be uh, attentive to that and we would pray that that child would be safe and brought back home safely and Lord maybe there's a an opportunity for uh, the family or the mother or the, the somebody in the family to hear about Jesus and then for that to spread into the whole family and even to the people that are involved in this Amber Alert if it uh, is a real alert that's what we would pray Lord is that you would be glorified through it and Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. What a wonderful word you've given us. What a wonderful, beautiful Savior it reveals to us. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Shift. Okay, we're going to push this back. Let's see here. We're going to go to break.